When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking about the common with two of the people who are important in making that journal come about. One of our guests today is Liz Witte. She is the Associate Editor and Director of The Common in the Classroom. And our other guest joining us is Jennifer Acker, who is the Founder and Editor-in-Chief of The Common. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Happy to be here. I'm so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about a literary journal and all the things behind the scenes and all the ways that you bring it to the public. But before we get started, I hope that you will both tell us a bit about yourselves. Liz, can we start with you? Sure. Um, so I, um, I'm i a writer and editor, um, mostly write uh, poetry and nonfiction. Um, for The Common, I um, edit a lot of our nonfiction uh, for print and for the website. Um, and I also work with teachers who are, uh, using the common in the classroom, uh, as a course text, um, high school, undergraduate and graduate. Um, and I also work, uh, on our, um, grant applications and things of that ilk. Um, yeah. Thank you. And Jen, can you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Yes. So, um, so I'm I'm also a writer. Uh, Liz and I actually met in grad school um, when we were both uh, pursuing our our MFAs. Um, so I'm a prose writer. Um, I write novels and and nonfiction. And I started the the common about eleven years ago now, um, and it has been a wonderful enterprise and has grown to include. Um, an internship program at Amherst College, which is where the, the magazine is based, um, as well as a literary festival called LitFest uh, that we have at, at the college in February. Um, and I'm involved in a, in a lot of other sort of writing-centric uh, programs uh, at the college, um, in addition to the, the specific magazine programs. One of the things that I like to ask my guests, because this is the academic life, is if you would tell us a little bit about your own educational journey. Um, Jen, can we start with you? When did you know you wanted to get into writing and be a writer? Did you know back in high school and were you intentional about choosing a college path towards that? Or how did you get from, um, you know, 17-year-old Jen to all the way through the, the MFA? 
I thought we were going to start back in, you know, before 17, back, back in childhood. Um, we can. <laughs> we can start with your love of winning the Pooh books or wherever it started. Um, no, I was a very bookish child. You know, I, I, I was, I grew up as an only child. I have some half siblings, but um, I spent, I grew up in the, in the country uh, in a very rural place, you know, a, as an only child. So I read a lot. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading and had a lot of, a lot of readers in my life. Um, my father read to me, my grandmother read to me, my cousins. Uh, so that was all, all very wonderful. And as a kid, I wrote a lot of poetry and won poetry contests and, and things like that. Um, and then I continued to write in, in high school. And by the time I got to college, I knew that writing was very important to me, but I think I didn't know what a writing life would look like. I mean, who does? It, it, before you before you start to make one, it's it's really hard to imagine what it would be like for you. So, um, while I took as many writing classes as I could in college, I was not an English major. I actually, majored in anthropology. Um, I had taken a gap year before college and lived in Kenya um, and and in Mexico. So, anthropology sort of fit my concerns at that time when I was sort of, you know, trying to find a lens through which to understand some of my cross-cultural encounters. And, um, and that was, that was very exciting to me. But as soon as I graduated, I was really pursuing uh, writing related jobs. Um, and Amherst College hired me right out of, you know, uh, as a, in the, a post-grad uh, fellowship writing editing uh, position right out of college. And that was a wonderful job. I learned how to do a lot of different kinds of writing. Um, and then it was about 10 years before I went to get my MFA. So I spent a decade working in different kinds of, of publishing careers before uh, before go going back to school. And then it was during your MFA that you met Liz? Yeah, yeah. So we both went to the Bennington writing seminars, um, and uh, I'll speak for myself, but I I loved it. Uh, I mean, really had a wonderful program and, and met, uh, you know, had fantastic teachers, and um, yeah, Liz and I became friends uh, very quickly and have been friends ever since. Um, and at the time that I that I that we were starting at Bennington, um, I was also starting the magazine. Uh, so at that by that time, I already. Sort of had the idea of the magazine and was working to make it happen and the first issue actually came out um um i guess that the term that we graduated uh the first issue came out so while i was in grad school i was also sort of working to to put the first issues together and figure out what the magazine w would look like and now this was going to work i want to dive into that more but first i want to offer the same question to liz can you tell us about your educational journey and how writing uh, threaded through that story as well. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say I, I definitely read a lot as a kid, but I think the like most formative thing for me, um, especially as a writer and and publishing and in um, in an educational setting was when I was in undergrad at the University of Michigan, and I um, studied with. Um, uh, Professor uh, Ken Michalowski, who was a is a poet, and um, I was in um, kind of a, a smaller learning community within the larger university. And Ken and his wife, um, who by that time had passed, had started a press called the Alternative Press uh, in Detroit. 
and um, they would publish uh, poets and artists on um, like these series of 500 postcards. Um, you know, uh, Anne Waldman, Faye Kiknaswe, Allen Ginsberg. It was uh, Alice Notley. It was uh, amazing. And he brought into the class this box of all this ephemera of one of the, um, you know, of the issues, uh, quote unquote, uh, which were more like packets that they would publish and distribute. And it was just like awe-inspiring to me. And so it really kind of opened my eyes to this very engaging and exciting way of, of being with writing and, and what that could look like. Um, and so Ken is somebody who I studied with um, as in a class and independently throughout um, college and who I've stayed in touch with. Um, and so that was sort of in a, not so much maybe a professional way, but just in an inspiring way, an introduction to a writing life. And then after I graduated, I worked in a lot of different jobs, um, not really so writing related. Um, and uh, then kind of was kicking around, what am I going to do? And found my way to, to Bennington, which was also wonderful for really connecting me with other writers such as Jen. Um, and and the world of literary magazines, which I really knew so little about, aside from like a little zine that a friend and I had started in college. You know, we'd done something like that, but it wasn't um, it wasn't really a world I felt like I understood until I um, kind of got a peek through the MFA program and through talking with Jen and and working with Jen, um, and so. That I feel like was sort of maybe when I started to take that work or that part of my life more seriously. Um, I still split my time between working at the Common and uh, working another job that is, you know, I do a lot of writing in, but is not a literary uh, work. It's I work at Harvard Medical School, um, so you know, I'm splitting my time and brain a little bit. But um, but yeah, it's um, I think both the the undergraduate and graduate experiences really were my like kind of touch points for how does, how can one be in writing and how can, you know, what does, you know, publishing look like on, you know, on different levels. So let's go back to that first issue of the common. I'm so intrigued about being in grad school and being able to launch a magazine. Um, I don't, know how you had the the bandwidth for all of that. I'm very impressed. Um, so were, the original issue were, were uh, fellow students in the in the MFA program, the major contributors, or how did you launch this while simultaneously completing your MFA? It was a busy time, <laughs> for, for sure. Um, I was also, you know, I still had, I was, uh, my proofreading job at, at that time, I was working in a freelance capacity for a science publisher doing proofreading. Um, so I was doing that to make money and, and you know, pay my way through grad school. Um, so it was like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and just sort of chasing activities one, one thing after the next. Um, but I would say the uh, putting together the, the magazine uh, was not really it was something that I talked about a lot in grad school with, with, you know, with my friends and the other people in our class and, and with my teachers. But 
it was sort of a it occupied a separate space in in my life at at, at that time in terms of putting it together. Um, I had sort of approached Amherst College about getting some initial support and um, and the Creative Writing Center and the English department had given some some seed money so that we could pay the designer. Like she was really the first person who needed to be paid uh, was to make a, a, a uh, come up with a design and design the first issue. And so then, and um, I had spent my, you know, the first years of putting the magazine together um, coming up with an editorial vision for the magazine, uh, developing an editorial board, uh, sort of, you know, asking teachers and, uh, you know, other, you know, uh, esteemed writers that I knew to lend their support uh, to the magazine by, by serving on the board. Um, and we solicited some of our first pieces that appeared in the first issue from, from that board also. So that, that was one way that we, um, that we solicited work. And then um, I also sort of, yeah, went, you know, through some uh, collegiate uh, connections. Um, I went to college with Lauren Groff. So I was able to ask her for a story for the first issue, people that I knew from writing residencies. So it was really just, you know, personal connections, teachers, um, you know, uh, who did the poetry editor know? Uh, you know, what, what could we, what could we pull together? Um, so that those were the first steps of the issue. And then once we actually had something printed, something in hand, then we could go around um, and show it to people as a way of drumming up more support and enthusiasm for the magazine. And how did it come to be uh, housed where it is now? It really a, a function of the fact that I went to Amherst College as an alum, um, and I was very aware of how much the college valued writing. Um, that had been not only a central part of my education, but a central part of the college's own history and lore, like the the colleges practically across the street from the Emily Dickinson Museum and Robert Frost had taught at Amherst College um, and there are a number of other sort of esteemed literary connections um, and there were a number of wonderful writers that the college had had graduated. Um, Ted Conover is a nonfiction writer who I had sort of gotten to know because I was an alum and um, and he was too and I you know I was reading I was reading his work so um, so I was aware that that Amherst would be a really good home for the magazine if I could sort of talk them into it, <laughs> which took a while. This was not uh, was not you know an immediate. Uh, I mean there was there were immediate supporters, but in terms of the kind of support that we have from the from the college now, um, that developed over several years. So the first issue was in 2011, I believe. When did you come to be permanently affiliated with Amherst? Well, we were affiliated with them from the beginning. Um, and in fact, one of our early supporters was the director of the library. Um, and he, at that time, was starting up uh, an open access academic press called Amherst College Press. Uh, so I was fortunate to find someone at the institution who was also excited about publishing uh, just as a general activity. While we were interested in publishing very different things, we did have a common interest. And uh, and so he offered us uh, office space in the library, which was huge, and we still occupy that space 
in the library. And so that that support uh, helped give us, you know, gave us an institutional foothold combined with support that we were getting from various departments. Um, we also, from the very beginning, had college-sponsored students uh, working for the magazine, just just a couple in the beginning, the, the first few years. But from the beginning, the college was very interested in, in having the Common provide opportunities for undergraduates. Um, which was exciting to me too. I, I wish I had had a similar opportunity when I was an undergrad and in fact did end up working for, for a professor for a magazine he had started, even though it wasn't a college sponsored magazine. It was the, his, the magazine that he started was based somewhere else. Um, so there were lots of different kinds of, of, uh, of support, um, just the sort of official connection developed over the first few years. So I want to get into um, all the exciting things that the Common is doing, such as the Common in the Classroom and your summer program for young writers and the whole suite of ed programs that you've de developed. But um, before we before we go there, just in case listeners haven't seen a copy of the Common before, they haven't heard about it. Could you just give us a description of the mission of the journal? I know in the first uh, issue, you have a whole beautiful letter where you talk about what inspired the, the name and the um, sort of through line of what you look for. So can you can you share that with listeners, please? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll say a few things, um, and then maybe Liz can fill in where I've uh, what I have neglected. Um, but the whole the whole mission of the magazine is is about sense of place. Uh, that's the orienting principle of the common. Uh, so when I was thinking about uh, starting a magazine and what should the magazine be about? It had to really be about something and had to have a clear mission because there already were many wonderful magazines and we needed some way to set ourselves apart. And there were two ways which I thought about doing that. Uh, one was through this sense of place mission, which took me a little while to come around to, but um, I uh, finally landed on that as something that I was passionate about as someone who's from a small town and always looks for the the placiness in in um, in the things in the things that I read, and so that that became a a, a focus and um, sort of provided the orientation of the magazine, and then the other uh, the other element that uh, I I wanted to, uh, that was important to me was the design that it be a print object and that was tactile and beautiful and that people would really want to hold it in their hands. Um, and so I, I was fortunate to be able to um, ask um, a jacket designer, someone I had worked with at, at Knopf and book publishing, a uh, wonderful designer uh, to, to design the magazine. So those, those are the two sort of pillars that we, uh, that we launched on the, the, those two aspects. And that sense of place mission is still very important to us. It has, you know, we have expanded the range of activities that, that we do, which we'll, we'll talk about, um, but it, it really has remained central. And in terms of the publishing program, uh, one way that place continues to be important to us is in our focus and works on translation and in these uh, place and language specific portfolios that, that we publish. Um, we publish a lot of works in translation from Arabic we focus on a different uh, Arabic speaking country every spring. 
and have a portfolio of, of uh, fiction translated uh, from Arabic and uh, and we work with our Arabic fiction editor, uh, the Jordanian writer Hisham Bustani for, um, for those portfolios, and then uh, work with other guest editors from different parts of the world and different kinds of expertise uh, to do our to do other uh, other kinds of portfolios. And that has become a real focus over uh, you know over the past five years or so and has been has been really exciting and it has been a fun way for us to uh, shine a light on literary communities in different parts of the world. The name of it is The Common, and you are in New England. Is this a reference to the historic New England Common idea? Yes, thank you for, for mentioning that. Absolutely. Uh, yes, the, I grew up in New England, and Amherst College is sort of perched right on the edge of a town common. Uh, so the idea of a town common was very familiar to me, and of and of course, that public gathering space is something that is common to cultures around the world. So generally, wherever you go, there is some kind of common space um, that a community uses to exchange the news, to meet each other, to go for an evening walk, uh, to you know host the farmers market or the vegetable market. Uh, and so the idea of having that common as the name of a space, um, also the idea of finding the extraordinary in the common and finding uh, what's, you know, what's interesting and exciting about everyday experiences or even common experiences is, is another, um, another way we think about the title. And that's a good jumping off place uh, for talking about the common in the classroom because the common doesn't just have to stay in, in the New England square. It can, it can go to where people are and, and where the people uh, are learning about literature and literary studies. Um, Liz, can you tell us about your work doing the common in the classroom? What is it? Where do you go? What age groups do you work with? Sure. Um, so yeah, I think the the program sort of started out of conversations that we were having with um, teachers uh, who were familiar with lit mags and said, oh, I would love to use those in my courses, but I'm not quite sure how or um, you know, I'd love a little helping hand. And so the common in the classroom, um, kind of the core of it is a discounted classroom subscription program that we provide um, for current or back issues, um, as well as uh, sample lesson plans and other resources that um, can kind of deepen student engagement. Uh, and the program also offers the opportunity for um, a visit uh, virtually with often with Jen uh, as the editor in chief to give students um, kind of a window into the publishing process or the editing process, sort of wh wherever their interests lie. There are often conversations that are really guided by student interests. Um, and the, the program has worked with student, high school students, uh, undergraduate and graduate, um, often like MFA programs, um, a lot of English or writing programs, uh, personal, uh, personal essay courses, first year seminars, also some um, Arabic literature courses or you know, Arabic literature and translation courses. Um, so uh, it's sort of a magazine that can add to a lot of different classes or you know, often there are pieces that fit, are a fit for, for a lot of different sorts of courses. Um, and I'm 
always happy to, you know, connect with teachers and and brainstorm which pieces might fit or which issues might really, uh, you know, be of interest to their students. Often it's the first time students are holding a literary magazine or being introduced to one. So that can be really um, eye-opening and to see these works in conversation with each other, sort of that, you know, literary equivalent of the, the, of the common of these conversations happening in literature within a single volume. Um, And also young writers or, you know, writers who might have similar experiences with them or entirely new experiences. So it's sort of a, a really interesting way for students to engage with contemporary writing and contemporary writers. Um, And the program, you know, while at its core is this, you know, the print subscriptions, which I think Jen and I both feel passionately about. It's really, there's nothing like holding it in your hand. Um, We are also an open access uh, publication. So everything we publish is available on our website so that if teachers just want to use a single piece or if, you know, we don't want any cost to be a barrier to accessing uh, the works that we publish. So um, we, we know we have, um, you know, interest overseas and teachers using some of our pieces overseas. Um, So it's sort of expanded um, in that way uh, to include not just the the print issues, but also just supporting um, any sort of classroom use. We also put together reading lists of related um, to different themes or to uh, pair with a, a certain heritage month that's being observed in the United States. Um, so we're kind of always looking to partner with and support teachers to connect new readers with the, the works in our pages. You mentioned earlier on that you do some grant writing. Um, as I was looking at this beautiful journal, because you very nicely sent me three different issues, and I have to say, I immediately wondered uh, about the background of designing it and the intentionality of the size and the, the layout and that, that the covers are in color, that there's color um, art inside, because it does definitely set it apart from um, other poetry journals, other literary journals. It definitely has um, a, a, a lovely aesthetic. Um, and so I hope that listeners will get a chance to at least see one in person because um, they are beautiful. They're really, you need to see them in person. So I'm so glad that you have a way of getting them to um, students so that they get that experience. But it, as you were all speaking about all of these different aspects, I was thinking that's expensive. Ooh, that's expensive. So can you talk about the role of um, funding challenges and, and the grants that you write? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, um, you know, funding is, is a perennial challenge. Um, uh, we um, regularly seek funding from um, the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, we pursue other uh, grants as um, as they come about. We've received funds through the Amazon Literary Partnership. Um, a lot of these uh, programs or you know funding opportunities support our um, our writers and translators. Um, also, so, you know, some of that supports the kind of nuts and bolts that you were talking about with the the production of a, a physical object. Um, 
And yeah, it's just something that, um, you know, in addition to the institutional support that we have um, to be able to provide kind of the, the publishing, the, um, you know, event programming that we like to do to promote our authors and translators, and then the, the educational programs that we do in addition to the common classroom, we do um, a couple of other a summer writing program for high school students and um, some more uh, generative uh, master classes and, and uh, writing uh, programs for emerging writers. So um, to be able to be kind of a diverse uh, organization that can do those things while producing a, a print issue twice a year, uh, we're just always kind of keeping an eye out for what funding might be available. Um, there's not a ton of places that are looking to fund literary magazines. So uh, we're always thankful to um, there's organization CLMP that um, also helps uh, advocate for and, and um, make us aware of opportunities uh, to, to seek funding. Um, Jen, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add to that. Just to mention the Waiting Foundation, oh, um, yes. <laughs> uh, which is um, which has sort of the the Waiting Foundation supports an, a number of different kinds of um, uh, writing and artistic activities, but they sort of saw several years ago that there was um, a gap uh, in funding for literary magazines that there just wasn't a lot of support um, aside from from the NEA and a little bit from Amazon. Um, and so they sort of stepped in to fill that gap and um, over the past several years have been uh, have been offering uh, three year grants and, and matching grant opportunities uh, to, liter to literary magazines of different sizes. And uh, we were I think they the first the first year they started offering them was 2018. Um, and um, uh, we won the uh, what one of these grants, one of these um, they're called the Whiting Literary Magazine Prizes um, in 2019, and that was huge for us. Um, it was a very nice amount of money. Um, they also sort of coach you to help develop your fundraising program so that you become more adept at, at raising money from individuals. Um, and it's a very supportive environment where you can learn from other magazines. Uh, so, I, uh, so if there's anyone you know working on literary magazines out there, I want to urge them to uh, apply for the Whiting Literary Magazine Prizes as, as well as the other opportunities that Liz mentioned. Yeah, th thank you, Jen. That that was a transformational um, uh, prize to receive, and and the support that went along with it, and the multi-year model. So, thank you for for catching that. Let's talk, if we can, about the summer program for young writers. I know I would have loved to have done something like that. So it definitely piqued my interest when you mentioned that earlier. Jen, would you like to tell us about that? And then Liz, if you'd like to add on. Absolutely. Yeah, this, this, was, this has been a really fun, uh, fun new program for us and something I, I never would have thought of, even though I am aware of the other summer programs that magazines offer. Um, I didn't think of us as really having the capacity to offer something for younger writers, for high school students. Um, but one of our, our contributing editors, um, who is a, a professor of writing and a writer herself, uh, Marian Crotty, uh, she, um, she thought of this during the pandemic uh, when 
you know, when all of us were recognizing that uh, parents were sort of pulling their hair out about, how, you know, what were their kids going to do over the summer? Uh, on the one hand, there was some worry about spending more time on the screen, but that's really all there was available um, because the, the program that we developed um, is a virtual program, uh, which allows us to enroll high school students from all over the world, which is very exciting. Um, and so we, you know, always have students from uh, from multiple countries and from uh, very different backgrounds. So we have run this uh, for two years in a, in a row now. It's a, a two week uh, virtual writing camp uh, for high school students. Uh, we are offering it right now in in fiction writing, but we may expand into other genres uh, down um, down the line. And they, it, we provide. Um, in, in instruction and mentorship in if you're a very beginner writer, if you've really never done any fiction writing before, as well as an advanced level class. Um, and it's been it's been really fun. Uh, we, we've been so enlivened and inspired by the students that we work with. It all this program also provides some teaching opportunities for our Amherst College students who are interns at the magazine. So they then have a chance uh, to you know, to work with high school students and to you know read their writing and provide feedback, um, and so I think on on all levels, it it has really been an, an exciting way to expand our offerings and reach a new age group. Um, we work really hard to raise scholarship funds uh, for high school students also, so that um, the cost isn't. Uh, uh, doesn't prohibit access uh, to anyone and, you know, try to do um, you know, need blind admissions and then offer uh, offer scholarships to the, to the students who need it. Liz, would you like to jump in and add anything? Yeah, I would just say, yeah, um, kind of echoing Jen, um, it's, I think it was a program um, we had, somebody had suggested uh, years ago, oh, you guys should do a writing, a summer writing program where like, we don't have the capacity to do that. And at the time, the idea of doing anything online wasn't really in the mind. So we were like, we definitely don't have the capacity for an in-person thing. And then uh, it was really uh, a testament to, to Marion uh, bringing this idea and uh, we all, you know, working together to, to make the first iteration uh, come about. And I know um, hearing from the interns and, and other staff about um you know, just how much the students enjoyed it and how much they enjoyed connecting with other young writers, um, you know, where they might not have that community um, at, at their own school or in their own uh, group of friends. So um, it's it's been uh, more fun and more rewarding for us even than I think we would have imagined. And, um, and I know something we're looking forward to continuing and growing as, as we can. One thing I'd love to ask you is if you could take us behind the scenes of putting together the magazine, if we could be a fly on the wall of a typical day for each of you, what would that be like? <laughs> sure. Um, I don't know that I have a typical day, um, but um, I think in terms of, um, you know, there's a couple like categories that I'm looking at each, each day. Um, and one of those major ones is, uh, reading submissions. Um, and that's always, um, it's always a treat when I have the time to devote to it. So, um, 
you know, we, we publish a lot of um, unsolicited writing. Um, and so finding those pieces in, in our queues and um, connecting with writers, uh, we do a lot of, um, or, you know, I do a lot of developmental or, you know, um, kind of intensive editing with, um, with writers where we might see room to bring more into an essay or, um, you know, do some shaping. And it's a very collaborative process, you know, definitely guided by the, the writer's uh, vision. Uh, but, you know, an opportunity to have a conversation about the work on the page and bring it to our readers. Uh, so that's always a, a great joy. Um, and then um, I do some, you know, connections with our editorial team, which is <clears throat> dispersed. Um, so kind of making sure that they're in the loop and, um, and keeping on top of, um, of our, um, our grant applications um, and yeah, and then just kind of the interfacing with teachers and uh, promoting that that program. But um, I think the uh, the the work of the the magazine itself and um, and kind of finding those pieces that find their way into the pages is um, a real joy. Jen, what's a typical day for you? Well, I'm going to echo a little bit of what Liz said about. Um, about the priority of editing. Um, so for, for the common editing really is a, it is our top priority um, and working with writers and finding new writers and, and developing, developing pieces into the best shape possible uh, is what we care the most about. It's what we enjoy the most. It's, it's why we're in this business. It's why we are at literary magazines um, because we can have that intimate relationship with authors. Um, and it is time consuming and it does require concentration and not something I can do with my email going off in the background. So if I'm smart and I have planned well, um, I try to do my, uh, you know, the reading of submissions or editorial work um, in the morning um, before I get sort of sucked into the, the whirlpool of, of email. Um, so I try to do that when my mind is fresh uh, or sometimes I might. I might do that after lunch if I, once I've taken a break from the computer for a bit. Um, so that kind of uh, editorial work takes out, you know, some some part of every day, or or sometimes I might, you know, set aside a whole morning or or an afternoon to to work on things. Um, and then, you know, because part of my work involves, you know, various interactions with. Uh, with Amherst College um, and event planning and other kinds of um, other kinds of collaborations, um, I often spend you know spend some time talking or meeting with colleagues um, uh, on campus to you know to think about talk about things that we're working on together. Um, I mentioned this literary festival uh, that I direct that happens in February that the common is a part of and, um, and many other many other parts of the, the college as well. So I might work on that. Um, uh, fundraising is always there. You know, we talked a little bit about the grant writing and, you know, the various ways that we uh, try to bring in in revenue from a variety of sources. And so keeping up with donors and thinking about um, thinking about our upcoming revenue generating programs, um, whether you know, we're hosting, you know, an event next month or whether it's, um, it's not something that that's happening for several months. Um, 
there's some, some part of the day that is always taken up thinking about um, how to develop those programs, um, how to cultivate our donor base, um, you know, staying in touch with the people who are supporting us. Uh, and then and then working with working with staff, we have uh, the magazine staff. Um, we have staff meetings once a week and there is always, um, you know, there are check ins and, you know, um, other kind of trainings and, uh, you know, uh, working with interns and, you know, spending time checking in with uh, with other editors uh, apart from that. Uh, so that's yeah, those are those are a few things that happen every day for sure. You mentioned that you have to do fundraising besides grants. You you recently did a, a postcard project to raise money for the common. Can you tell us about that project? Yeah, yeah, that's so much fun. Um, yeah, that happens in November, so we're we're just closing it out, and uh, it is a postcard auction. Uh, and so the the event is an auction. It's an an online auction. Uh, in which um, you bid to receive a personalized handwritten postcard from one of your favorite authors. Uh, so this year we had um, David Sedaris participating and Joy Williams and Alexander Chi and Mazam and Giste and, um, you know, 42 um, exceptional writers, uh, including, including musicians. Uh, Jeff Tweedy of Wilco participated this year. Um, and so we really try to get a broad range uh, of writers, people who we think that readers will be excited about, um, and then um, you know, and then people from all over the world um, bid on these on these postcards, and it can get pretty competitive, uh, with some you know last minute sweeping in and, <laughs> and trying to um, to outbid and win up you know down to the last second. Um, and it's it's really fun. Uh, they make for wonderful holiday gifts. You know, so we run it in November, so that if you want to get, um, you know, a post have a David Sedaris write your, um, you know, write your sister a postcard um, for the holidays, uh, we can make that happen. This story reminds me a bit of one that Liz uh, touched on earlier. I believe it was um, your teacher Ken. Yeah. Who, yeah. Was was that part of the inspiration for this or is this just a coincidence? We have postcards twice. I think it's just a coincidence. I don't I don't know quite how Jen came up with this um this model, but I don't I don't know that I mentioned uh the alternative press in its founding. No, I don't think I knew about the postcards at uh, at the time. It came out of a brainstorming meeting with with the board. You know, we were just thinking about um, this was a, an activity originally that we ran at an in-person gala. We used to have a, um, an annual gala in New York called the Common in the City, uh, which was a lot of fun, and and it always had sort of an auction uh, component to it. Um, it's become a little bit harder. To, we're you know based here in Western Massachusetts. It's become a little bit harder to um, to to plan things from afar. <laughs> Never mind during a pandemic. Um, so the so the online uh, auction has been um, has been a great you know a great way for uh, us to reach new readers and we have a lot of um, people who participate every year and I think there's you know people have different reasons for participating but I do think there's something about a postcard that ties into our mission you know that ties into the sense of place 
mission, the sort of wish you were here uh, kind of spirit. Um, and the fact that, you know, the, the author that you most love, whose book that you just finished, would write you fan mail, <laughs> would, would, would send you a note, um, I think is, um, is, is really exciting and just a fun idea. I was just thinking how I do so many of these episodes. Um, I think I'm at my hundredth episode and I, out of all of it, I have two books that are inscribed by the authors because usually they come directly from the publicist. And it, it, I, I did totally fangirl like this is in their handwriting. They wrote this. It, it does as a book lover, it does do something to you when you have something in an author's writing. And the authors have done really incredible things too. I mean, Deborah Eisenberg wrote like a mini short story on the back of her card one year, and uh, people have have you know written haikus or or drawn pictures of the of the winning bidders' dogs. I mean, the authors really get into it um, and um, and have fun with it as well. We're running short on time, so I won't be able to ask all of my questions. But one I had is how. Far in advance, do you think about the theme? We're taping in December. This episode will air in late spring. Um, and you just closed your submissions for the new episode, new issue. Uh, you closed them in December. So how far in advance do you start thinking about the, the, the layout design for the spring issue, the theme of it? Um, usually in publishing, there's a, there's a long hidden um, uh, platform before the before something gets launched that most uh, listeners or readers aren't aware of yeah we, we, go, ahead, oh, go ahead Liz oh no I was just gonna say yeah we I, we are often working very far in advance um, so uh, I would say I you know most of most if not all of the spring issue is probably full and the new submissions will be for future issues and for um, we publish new uh, original work online uh, several times a week so uh, for for those columns uh, but uh, if we're I think we're happiest uh, when we when we have things planned a, a bit far further out uh, first it's helpful for that grant writing to be able to be specific but also to um, know that things are set to have the time to really do the thoughtful um, editing with with our authors, um, and then uh, the design work needs uh, a fair bit of time. So, um, you know, I would say, you know, at at certain times we're at least a year. Uh, we have a vision uh, at least a year in advance, and I think with the um, each spring issue with the portfolios, those are some thing that um, Hisham is working even further in advance because he's soliciting work in Arabic and then working, uh, he and Jen are working with uh, the translators. Uh, so it, it requires even more lead time. Jen, would you like to add? No, I don't have anything to add. That's, uh, that's, that's all very well put. Then I will pose to you the final question. Um, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Oh, that's such a nice question. I think, I think an, an awareness of of the broad range of activities that that we're engaged in and that we're supporting authors at all stages of their careers. You know, per, you know, particularly helping to to launch careers when authors are emerging, but also continuing to promote them as they go on to do other wonderful things. Um, in in the future, um, 
but but also just to the you know the range of educational programs and the the way that we are you know trying to engage people um, from all over the world um, with readers and writers uh, with with varying interests and uh, the way we're you know constantly thinking about how to how to meet the needs of a, of a literary community uh, that is that is changing and growing. And Elizabeth, uh, Liz, same question for you. Sure. Um, yeah, I think um, something that when you asked that I thought of um, is uh, one of our uh, repeat teachers of the common, Amy Weldon, uh, who's at Luther College in Iowa, um, had written to us after um, after one of uh, her classes to say how using the common and Jen's visit with her class uh, helped her students see that the publishing and writing world was a world that was open to her students who are in a rural place and might not feel like uh, this is a, a, a world that has room for them. Um, and that was really, um, that really hit me. And um, because it's, it's something that I didn't feel as a, you know, as a younger student um, and didn't see my way in. And so uh, if there are, you know, students who are listening or uh, teachers or just interested readers, just um, I think that we want to be part of a, of a, publishing world that is open to uh to folks and that um that this is um you know we are eager to hear from um from teachers from readers from writers and to engage and so it's not um it's not a sort of uh you know a wall as much as an opportunity to uh have conversation uh on the page or you know in person when those events can happen and so um yeah i would hope that um that listeners would hear um that um that you know the common and you know the work that we do is you know with the aim of of being part of opening those doors Liz Whitty and Jennifer Acker, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and telling us about all of your work at The Common. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.